have awakened. Our time is now. This is about reclamation of the feminine spirit embodiment here on earth. Here I share the practices, the studies about women who practice the sacred arts and who live the feminine in a rooted holding from the masculine, a way of raising our children where we are free. Take a listen and welcome to my podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sacred Art Temple podcast. This is my first official Sacred Art Temple podcast with an interview of Freddie Silva, who is my longtime inspiration. I wish I knew as much as he does. It's quite incredible actually to see what he does and how much he has immersed himself in. Freddie Silva is a best-selling author and a leading researcher on ancient civilization, restricted history, sacred site, and their interaction with consciousness. He's also a leading expert on crop circles. He has published eight books in six languages and produced 14 documentaries. He is described by one CEO as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now. And for two decades, he's been an international keynote speaker with noticeable appearances at the International Science and Consciousness Conference, the International Society of the Study of Subtle Energies and Energy Medicine, and the Association for Research and Enlightenment, in addition to appearances on Gaia TV, History Channel, BBC, and radio shows, etc. He is an incredibly knowledgeable person. I have listened to, as you can hear in the podcast, all of his um podcasts and I am going to dive into all of his six books. I am looking forward to a long summer of reading and discovering for myself the yeah the the interaction between sacred sites and this is really the reason why I wanted him on the show on a personal note I have for ever since forever been capturing playing with I don't know feeling um, it's a sense it's a sensory experience of picking up on subtle energy and obviously I didn't have knowledge nor a language for this this is really uh, something that I have been able to articulate in the last few years but it's really about sacred sites for me and how I've traveled around to vortexes around the earth on what I would say holiday. I had no idea. I just wanted to be around these areas. And then afterwards, I've dove into people such as Lawrence Gardner and Freddie Silva, especially, and other um, other people, Merciedek, uh, Dronovo, Merciedek is another one. Uh, notably all men, but I believe that more and more women are also coming into the lost art and the res of the resurrection of priestesshood who we 
you know, were once uh, in another lifetime and it's all kind of coming back to us and being awakened in us in this present moment. And don't worry if, if that's not you. Um, you know, I believe that these sacred sites and also sharing the knowledge can activate something very particular and special in you. And that is the reason why I share, because I just simply love um I don't know, connecting the dots. For me, this is really something I've done since a very young age. I went to France when I was 15 and visited so many churches. And now through Silva, it's really now that I understand and can connect so many dots of my life, uh, which I think is the reason why he also does this work. So it's quite spectacular. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And without further ado, I, I just want to let you have, enjoy this um, interview. There are points below about everything we talk about, which ranges from the sacred bloodline, the Christ and Mary Magdalene, who she really was, the, um, yeah, the Freemasons, who they are and how they have been kind of hijacked by, by the cabal and other yeah, other societies that do not have the integrity to put this forward and and sacred how sacred sites work and also a lot of his, historical information. But here goes the interview. Hope you like it. I, I can, I feel like I just wanted to have a chat because I've listened to probably all of the podcasts you have been on. And I did that as I was I, during COVID, actually, I was in Portugal and I visited a lot of these sites and I wasn't actually aware of the history when I went there. I just felt really called to go to certain places. And then afterwards, I kind of started digging a little bit. And then I found, well, I haven't actually read your books. Uh, I think I will have to because. Oh, we can't be friends. Then. We can't be friends. Oh, exactly. <laughs> No, but I mean, I don't know if you cover everything that's in the books in the actual podcast interviews, or is it more because you talk about so many different things in the in the podcasts you've done, at least the ones I've listened to. Um, I, not in terms of Portugal. Uh, I've done a little bit. Um, even I'm losing track of what I've done stuff. Um, I think. Um, I covered a little bit on my Templar book, obviously, uh, but it gets more into the Templars uh, and yeah. a little bit into in the Divine Blueprint, which gives us sort of an overall idea of how sacred sites work and why they exist. Uh, but I haven't done a specific uh, thing on Portugal yet. Um, I don't know mm -hmm. why. Uh, it's just it, I've I've had too many other things on my plate, and yeah. I have to go where the. Uh, you know, where the, where the world takes me, uh, or yeah. where my passion is, or where the information happens to open up. So there's no plan. Uh, ironically, I am going there in about, what, three weeks? Uh, I'm leading two tours. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be there the whole of May um, to do a bit more uh, research in the five days I have off to myself. Uh, so hopefully something will come of it. Uh, you just never know where these things go, because uh, there's very little written about the sites in Portugal. Where there is. Uh, it's more it? of... Yeah. Yeah, there's not much published. Uh, it's a very, I mean, archaeology in Portugal is a very uh, new uh, concept. And uh, it's now beginning to look like they have some of the oldest places in Europe. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, from what I've, little I've found, I found a lot of Armenian influence uh, 
in Portugal, uh, having right. discovered this through my work in Scotland, how the Armenian people moved uh, in about 6000 BC and it took a lot of their know-how uh, westwards into France and also into Portugal. But there's a much bigger story going on. It's just a matter of stumbling over the right information or being at the right place at the right time. So hopefully when I'm in my few days off that I'll have, maybe something will transpire and there'll be a project coming out of it. Uh, this is usually how it, how it works. Really interesting. Yeah, I'd be really, I'd love to know where one could get that information or, you know, also about your tours, etc. I, I can't make it in, in May, but I'd love to, if you were to do it in Portugal again, I'd love to join because I obviously, yeah. I just go out on my own and for me, it's very spirit led. It's, it's never, I just follow the energy, you know, it's very similar. Exactly. I think. And that's how it works. Exactly. And um, I've just kind of start, started digging. And I, it's interesting because since we've uh, set this interview, I started listening to, it just appeared, somebody shared it with me. Uh, you probably know who Lawrence Gardner is. Lawrence Gardner? Yeah. The late Lawrence Gardner. Uh, yeah, the late, I yeah. saw him in, in Salisbury. Oh, my God, that was a long time ago, about 22 years ago. Really? Because uh, he died. Yeah. Yeah, I saw, I saw he, but he also, I mean, he covered some really interesting links between Egypt and, you know, Southern France, but I believe, you know, you made the links for me with the Templars in Portugal. Um, and I just see the links between like that he made through Egypt and then the Gnostic gospels and, you know, these scenes and Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Yeah. And then what I feel is just, I just feel to follow the thread of the Magdalene's for some reason, not feeling like I'm, you know, I'm in need of doing anything in particular. It just, I'm really drawn to these areas. Yeah. Um, and I feel these areas activate me in, in some way, but I'd love to actually hear, I mean, there's so many things I'd love to hear, but I, there are just these pressing things that I can't seem to figure out. And it is why that like what did the templars have to do like really with this gnostic gospel the magdalenes i can't seem to make that link and then i can't seem to understand where the templars and the more recent history and these secret societies kind of went quite dark because <laughs> they don't seem yes and no very light yes and no. to me <laughs> Yeah, so that, no, you gotta don't, don't believe everything that. you read, <laughs> and don't believe right. everything on the internet. There's a lot of nonsense out there. Um, yeah. I mean, to cut a very long story short, uh, because I published all of that in the in First Templar Nation, uh, the idea was that the Templars were really following a very old tradition, which goes back to the Essenes, and they maintained this connection uh, for a thousand years through the uh, royal houses of Europe, and they kept it kind of quiet uh, because the church was basically uh, very dominant. Uh, so they found the right moment in time when the Crusades were going to Jerusalem and they went on the back of the Crusades to go and find something that had been hidden there. Um, the clue really lies in what built. Uh, if you look at all the churches, not one of them is ever dedicated to Jesus. They didn't care about Jesus. Uh, they respected him as, a, as an individual, but then what he had done had been done by thousands of other people before him. Uh, for thousands of years, so he wasn't special. Um, they dedicated all their churches to Mary Magdalene and John the Baptist. So you have to find out 
what's important about them and track their lineage uh, back to about three and a half, four thousand BC in Sumeria. And now you're making the connection uh, because that links the Essenes, the Mandeans, the Manichaeans, all the other Ians together. Uh, and when you see that they share something in common, that gets you into the, into a much more uh, close understanding of what the Templars were doing. So essentially, uh, if you go back to Japan in 8000 BC, there was a group of gods that appeared out of nowhere from a sinking continent in the middle of the, Atlant uh, of the Pacific after a global flood. And they arrived in Japan with some teachings and there are 17 teachings and they are called the way of the gods. Now this way, which we call today the Tao, or the Tao uh, eventually moves uh, through India, it moves through Sumeria, it ends up in the Near East around the time of the Gnostic Christians, the early Christian people, uh, long before Jesus was even around. Uh, and they picked up these teachings. Uh, they call it the way, which is exactly what it means in translation. And they were practicing this mystical uh, experience where you have an out-of-body experience involving a near-death experience. It's very dangerous. Uh, and then from that experience, you are declared risen from the dead. That's what the term means. You are awakened. You are enlightened. Uh, no one ever died. No one ever got nailed to a cross. Uh, that's where fundamentalist Christianity went. Uh, so this went underground during the Catholic era uh, when they were trying to basically undermine these sort of esoteric teachings that, that everybody was practicing to give the illusion that there's a God outside of yourself and you have to talk to a priest and pay the money to talk to God on your behalf. So they took the God that's inside and they made it an external event uh, and they put a lot of fear uh, into anyone that wasn't practicing this because it was a cabal. They were making money out of this. Uh, Catholicism is one of the most evil religions in the planet. Uh, it does everything but connect you with the sorts of things. That's what early cabal? Christianity was doing. You, you just said it's like, cabal. You mean that- It's like a cabal. Yeah, it is. It's like a mafia, essentially. Um, they don't practice what they preach and they have no understanding of what it is that they're preaching. And that's what the Gnostic Christians were upset about, that they stole their ideas without understanding the teachings of what they were trying to teach. So a thousand years later, the Templars suddenly had the moment of opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to uncover all of these scrolls that the Essenes buried under Temple Mount. And they had to be decrypted uh, there's a paper trail that goes all the way to Belgium. Uh, and then in order to practice um, this uh, mystical experience, they created Portugal as a country because it was as far from Rome as you could get back then. It was a very safe haven. And the Portuguese have always been very autonomous people. Uh, they don't like to rule people and they don't wish to be ruled. It's a very democratic kind of society. So they found a kindred spirit in the people that lived in Portugal at the time. And that's where they also put part of the bloodline because Mary Magdalene uh, was also pregnant. She had three children and Lawrence Gardner picked up on this uh, as well as um, Mike, as it Lee, Bajan and Lincoln, Henry Lincoln, uh, when they wrote the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, they found this trail of evidence. So part of that goes to France, part of it goes to Scotland and the other one ends up in Portugal. So the reason why the Templars founded that country was to A, practice what they had learned from the scrolls left behind by the Essenes. And two, because they were protecting a bloodline there. Uh, and three, because they were trying to set up a utopia 
from which everybody could benefit in Europe. And that's why they became rich and famous in a very short space of time. They were offering uh, spiritual salvation through your understanding of your own self, which is your own God inside, uh, which back then was very, very shocking because the church was trying to outlaw this kind of idea. So this is why the Templars were respected and loved uh, during that time. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, when the church finally cottoned on to what they were doing, they, uh, they moved to Scotland. Uh, and then from there, they went underground. They changed their name to Scottish Rite Freemasonry. Uh, so they're still around today. They just keep changing their name to survive. Uh, they call themselves the Invisible College, the White Brotherhood, Rosicrucians. It's the same people uh, yeah. practicing the same thing, but just going under different names so the church can't uh, find out where they are and who they are. So the system still survives today in one way or another. Um, where it gets a little bit dark is where you have people who want this information, but they don't have the integrity to apply it. There are, there's a system in place that maintains the integrity of the information, and it's only given to those who have the integrity and the patience to learn it. There's not many people. So we have people who uh, essentially created a alternative Masonic movement, which is the London Rite, which only really happened in the 18th century. They're the nasty people who are trying to take over the world exactly. and yeah. they've got their fingers in different pies. Those are not yeah. real, uh, the real Freemasons, you see. So, yes, there's a bit of darkness to it, but really uh, it's uh, a lot of it is people who are, think they know what they're doing, but they really have no idea what it is they're doing. Uh, it sets up this sort of parallel universe little of which has any resemblance to any kind of reality. So I wouldn't be worried about it because they don't really know what it is that they're up to. And uh, even people within the Masonic movement in London, uh, the London Rite said that these people think that they have some contact with the devil and the dark forces. And to be honest, they haven't. They have no idea uh, of, the, of the things that they are doing, the practices that, that they're speaking of. Uh, it's just a big sort of show of, uh, of force by an old boy network that tried to control the world for financial reasons. But, um, you know, partly they succeed uh, because the illusion becomes very real through places like the Internet or uh, some forms of uh, extremist media. Uh, but as long as you don't buy into that, uh, I wouldn't even worry about it. Uh, they're basically not going anywhere. Oh, interesting. So that's the history like of the world in about uh, yeah, 10 minutes. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> and I remember, like, all the reference. I've also read the book... Uh... Holy Grail, what, what was the name of Lawrence? The Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Yeah, so I read that as yeah, well. But very I, good book. Very good book. And uh, I'm, I'm really connecting a lot of dots because I'm talking, no, I'm not talking to them, but I'm researching from different sources, also from the people who work purely with the energetics and meditate on these sacred sites. So they get the information from the site itself, it seems. And then there's the historians such as Lawrence Gardner, who who spoke a lot about blood, blood, right? I would really love, this is also a blank for me, and I'm not sure how much information you have on it, but I'd love to understand more about one. I know you have a lot of really interesting knowledge about how sacred sites work. So that's the one. Mm -hmm. And then the second is also Mary Magdalene, her role in these, uh, as I understand also like the resurrection um ceremony if you can call it that and what what the priestesses were actually doing because this is also I feel also the side of the feminine as you know and Lawrence Gardner also speaks of it 
has really been suppressed. And that's very much my path yeah. to resurrect and reclaim the feminine and yeah. the sacred in the feminine. And and it's so hard to come across because there's so much, you know, they've really, really done a good job in eradicating it. I mean, we're here, so we're doing the work, but it's like you have exactly. such a, yeah, you have so much knowledge. So it just helps me so much to kind of connect those dots about yeah. Mary Magdalene, these sacred sites, what were the priestesses doing? Why did we, you know, why did we even need them? Why are they important? And this in in a correlation or relation to this bloodline? Was yeah, that a um, question? I, actually pub I published that in uh, The Lost Art of Resurrection, the book. Right, okay. Uh, it's all in there. Uh, and basically okay. what was happening was that uh, Mary Magdalene, I mean, the, 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 there's so little written about her, and yet... There's so many people who've written books about her, which are a million times more than it's available in terms of information. So there's a lot of personal opinion being put in here, which is very difficult to sort of sift through. But if you just base it on what we know from the original text, uh, we do know that a, it wasn't her, a real name. Uh, Mary was the tradition that she was following. So that was the tradition of Isis. Uh, she could have been Helen, she could have been Susan. It depends which tradition you're learning. Now, her uh, idea was to follow the tradition of the Isis tradition, which is the Marian tradition. Um, Magdal Ether is actually a title. Uh, it's not a name, it's a title. And it means the watchtower of the flock. So it signifies that she had risen to the top of the tower and she was now had people in charge under her. So the flock of the people. So if you're at the top of the watchtower and you have the people below you, you basically have reached the highest level of initiation of the temple. And she basically, if you look at the story in the Bible, which you really can't trust because it's so perverted, but if you strip away all the layers of nonsense and you get down to the nuts and bones of what the story says, the original, uh, the first person who was the witness to Jesus's miraculous resurrection, which again is completely misconstrued in the Bible. Um, it was Mary Magdalene, not Peter, okay? Mary Magdalene was the original witness to his miraculous rebirth, why? Because he had been drugged before uh, he uh, was tied to a cross and it was a ritual cross, it wasn't nailed to a cross, he was tied to it. And there's another story behind that. So he actually didn't get nailed to anything. He was taken down some time later and the first person that's there to revive him, to give him the antidote to the poison is Mary Magdalene. Now, only a woman who has the highest level of initiation in the temple has access to the understanding of poisons and antidotes, okay? And if you follow those bits of information all the way through the Middle East, they end up in Sumeria with the tradition of the Sumerians who were practicing exactly the same thing. So the women had the highest level of clearance because one, they carried the bloodline. That was the most important thing. The other person that carried the importance of the temple tradition was the priest messiah, who was John the Baptist. He follows that tradition because he is like the, the PR of the temple. But Mary Magdalene and all the women that came before her were the people who also held the uh, importance of the temple in equal uh, balance with the priest messiah. Uh, but she was more important because she holds the bloodline and the bloodline is what maintains the tradition of the temple. So if you go back to Sumeria, uh, the women were involved in the most um, secret rite, which is the rite of uh, initiation. And uh, this is after three years when the initiate has learned all the teachings, 
you're about to put into practice and this is where you do the very very dangerous thing uh you, it's a nine-month process it starts at easter and it ends in the winter solstice uh, so the church has got the resurrection backwards, by the way. <laughs> the resurrection is on the winter solstice because that's when the sun comes back to renew the earth. It, it overcomes the dark. That's the metaphor. So um, they are drugged. The initiate is drugged uh, with a poison and they have an, uh, an induced near-death experience. They're put it inside a box or a chamber or a cave. And then for three days, they've left the body. They've gone AWOL into the other world and they come back into the body. Uh, and while this is happening, the women are singing around the body. Uh, uh, like and they sound like bees, they sound like a hum. And the idea was that you're protecting the body, uh, the vessel of the initiate while the soul has left to make sure that no other soul can enter the body. You see, you want to maintain that vessel so that the person has somewhere to come back to yeah. uh, and uh, because they sounded uh, the hu they were humming for three days they sounded like bees uh, so the nickname stuck they were called the bees uh, so if you look at all the gods in mythology like zeus for example uh, they are taken away from their mother's breast uh, to feed uh, so that they're not fed milk from the breast they are uh, given to a midwife who gives them honey and the honey gives them insight and knowledge the knowledge of the gods so so when you have women called melissa uh, or melita or uh, they are uh, it's called honey they're the women who administered the honey and the honey is a metaphor for the knowledge that drips down from the sky uh, as the knowledge of the gods so when you look at egypt for example you look at the, the solar disk uh, and ra is crying tears of honey that comes down to the people that are receiving it you see it in many many uh, uh, temple walls so whenever you see the reference between women and honey that uh, tells you that the woman has a high level of clearance so they held the most important thing now the catholic church couldn't have that because they wanted a guy to be the patron of the foundation of the catholic church so they make peter the first witness to Jesus' miraculous mm -hmm. resurrection, right. because apparently he was the first bishop of Rome. Peter was never, ever the first bishop of Rome. It's, it's a complete lie. There is not one shred of evidence to back that up. So they've made up this whole story in order to take the women out of the equation because they knew that Mary Magdalene was pregnant. They knew that she was carrying the bloodline. So she has to go underground and protect that bloodline. And it's still around. Um, uh, uh, Lincoln, Lee, and uh, Bajan actually uh, alluded to this, uh, and, and um, Dan Brown, uh, obviously, uh, who copied the book into his film, The Da Vinci yeah. Code, alluded to the fact that the people are still alive today that carry that bloodline. Now, how pure it is, we don't know, because there's been so much intermarriage. The idea was that you kept the, the bloodline pure to maintain the integrity of the blood itself, because their special ability of these people was in the blood. They could see uh, uh, without traveling. Um, they were great clairvoyants and great healers, but that ability is not learned. It's actually in the blood itself. That's why intermarriage is very, very important. You didn't want to marry with normal people because it dilutes your ability. Uh, so that was the big story behind uh, Mary Magdalene. She's part of a very old tradition. Do you know anything about the, the people who are a part of this bloodline oh i don't know someone no. said that i'm part of the bloodline i mean good good god um <laughs> although uh, there are well there are people in the masonic order uh i mean i think every all of us want to be someone special i think in life uh i well, don't we really are, much we are in our own way you know <laughs> yeah. 
you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I used to be a god or a king or a queen. Uh, But no, there are people within the Masonic uh, world that have actually been following uh, my my work with the Templars in Portugal because I was asking these very awkward questions. And it turns out, and I had no idea this was even going on, that my family can be traced to the first family of Portugal and they are related somehow to the first Mm -hmm. ruler of Portugal and also to Bernard of Clairvaux, who was part of the divine bloodline. And I don't look Portuguese. I really don't. I'm a six foot five. I mean, I don't think it's a, a, you know, we follow our destiny, don't we? You know, you're uncovering. I'm beginning to suspect something's going on, you know. (laughs) So I guess I'm part of royalty. Who knew? Um, But I'm very tall. I'm very unusual for someone who's born in Portugal. I mean, I have green eyes. I was blonde when I was young. Your family, yeah, your family comes from there or parts of your I was born in Portugal. Yeah, my family's all Portuguese. So, ah, yeah, so, and also my so DNA, British. 38 of my DNA comes from central France and from Burgundy, where the most enlightened people used to be yeah. when the Templars were around who created my country of birth. So I'm now beginning to realize that I'm actually involved in this. And, and I thought I was just writing a book. Really? You know? so who, well, no coincidence. But what, yeah. I, what I do know from the Masons is that uh, these people uh, are being protected for their own good. Uh, because uh, now is not the right time to bring these people out. It's not politically expedient uh, to bring this out. So they're being protected for their own good. Uh, So there are people within the Masonic institution who know who is who. So who knows where this story goes? Maybe I own a castle in Portugal. I don't even know it. Right. I mean, mean, that is one of the... I mean... That's one of the the most important reasons, I think, for, for talking to you. I mean, I just really enjoy it. I think I could listen to you for hours. But I, I because it's also, you know, can't put a finger on it, but I can feel, I can feel it when I'm in Portugal. And I also felt very called cool to go there uh, a few years ago. And, and yeah, I just, I had no idea of any of this knowledge. And I've been to Jerusalem and I've been to, you know, the birthplace. So so they say I've been to many of these places in Jerusalem and everything was by chance. You know, I had yeah. no clue of any of these, any of this knowledge. It just kind of came to me. But I, I, I believe. I and I can worth it. Hmm? I think that's, that's actually worth doing, not having much knowledge of something, right? just following your gut feeling. Yeah. I think you... You, you, then you don't have the ability to make things up. Yeah, because sometimes you want exactly. something so much that you start putting in yourself mm. uh, into the situation, and then that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, sometimes it's better just to go like an idiot, you know, into something. No, really, I really uh, and feel that And then get the information too. from the actual space. And I, I mean, I do that a lot. Most of my books begin as a feeling at a place, and then I have to back it up with some hard facts. Uh, to bring the people who are very skeptical into this arena. Uh, otherwise, it'd be easy to do. Uh, anybody can just say, oh, I, I dreamed this up. I channeled it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there's a market for that. I'm not interested in that market. I'm interested in trying to bring more people to understand uh, these experiences so that they have an opportunity to also grow uh, spiritually and find themselves. Yeah. And tell me more about... So I'm glad you're drawn to yeah. Portugal. It's a very important place. Yeah, I mean... Uh... So, I mean, there's many things I want uh, to talk about, but I think I'll, I'll leave it for the end because I might edit it out. <laughs> it's very like a personal <laughs> journey. But I, I feel that um, sacred places, I've just been drawn to them without understanding they were sacred. And then afterwards I found find out. But I'd love also for the listeners 
you know, on my podcast. And I know a lot of people are interested in these things. When I sit around, you know, a campfire, I tend to just talk about your podcast and what I found for myself. And people, it's very interesting. People well, just turn really quiet. And usually it's in Portugal that I do it as well. And they turn really quiet. It's like something is ignited within them it's just something very very special about talking about you know this knowledge and i would really love for you to go into just a little bit more about sacred sites and why you know churches were built upon them and why is this important at all well like why you know for most people it's just a bunch of stones it's like uh, you know a site to visit as a tourist and for those of us who know <laughs> Tell us more about the, you know, with with respect, because I have enormous respect. I also go here in Norway to a lot of stone circles. People don't care about them at all. You know, there's Viking graves and stone circles, etc. And I go there, um, but I have enormous respect for them. And I still feel like I'm a toddler. But I'd love to know more about yeah, your work around that and why it is important for people to know what you would like to share about. Yeah, these sacred sites around the world. Well, you have to go back to what people were doing thousands of years ago and uh, when before they built temples. Uh, if you look at the Aboriginal people or the Hopi, um, they didn't build anything. They would just go to a place on the landscape and connect to something much greater than themselves. And that's the, that's the clue, uh, because there are places on the land all around the world. Uh, I'm sitting on one of them right now. Uh, you can't see it but I can feel it. Uh, it's the only place where I can actually put my desk in my apartment where I can get my work done. Uh, so these currents of energy are everywhere. They're like the uh, arteries uh, of the planet, just like the human body can't survive without uh, the veins and the arteries that flow uh, through which the blood flows. The planet also cannot survive without its energy, uh, which flows invisibly through these currents. So back in the days before we had cell phones and television uh, and distractions, uh, people used to be much more connected to the land. So they could sense that something was not quite right with them. Uh, and in order to find out what uh, was going on, they would move to certain spaces on the land where they felt connected, uh, not knowing or maybe knowing that that's where the uh, veil between the worlds is a little bit thinner. And there are spots on the planet where the veil is a bit thinner because of the way gravity, electricity and magnetism combine to create a different frequency just so that allows you to tap in with the slightly different radio station. It's like you're not quite in the third dimension, you're not quite in the fourth, there's a bit in between, there's a thin veil. And um, the, uh, the Hopi call them the spots of the fawn. Uh, and uh, if you go to these sites in America, you won't find anything there, but you can feel them. There's something unusual about the place. And now we have the technology to go to these sites and actually measure the energy and also map the energy. So we know it's there. We, it's mm -hmm. taken us 12,000 years to develop the technology to actually see this on a computer and say, well, yes, there's a vortex there. Um, there have been, for example, mappings of stone circles in England, which show the actual vortex going into a stone circle on a computer printout. So wow. we, have, we now have the ability to see with technology what the ancients could do so effortlessly. Um, any person who's intuitive uh, can do the same thing. Any psychic can do the same thing. They can see the energy. Uh, the more you interact with these spaces, the more your body becomes more attuned to them. Uh, and 25 years ago, when I was learning this, I thought people were smoking something very strange. Now I can do it. I know where the energy is. I can see it. I know the direction. Sometimes I can even uh, tell you what color it is. 
because I become so attached to it and I use it so much that for me it's second nature. Uh, so whenever I feel that I'm not connected, I go to Sydney's places and I feel much more energized. I can't be away from them too long uh, because I feel like my, you know, my fingers are, are disconnected from the electrical circuit. You know, I had to put my fingers in the in the plug and connect and go, whoa. Uh, although ironically, we can do this by ourselves as well using techniques like Kriya Yoga um, or meditation. It's the same process. You're connecting your electromagnetic grid to something much greater. So, and again, the more you do it, like driving a car, the easier it becomes. Um, so what happened was that as we began to go through time and we forgot how to do this, we had to mark these places with stones. So stone circles, dolmens, uh, menhirs, uh, anything to do with stone, specifically stone that has quartz in it. You know, you go to a, a, a new age shop that's full of quartz. The reason why they use quartz is because it comes from this tradition. The quartz remembers everything. Uh, it's an electromagnetic or piezoelectric material. And under the right circumstances, it will record and store energy. And that includes the intent of the people that go to these sites. That's why sometimes the stones are dragged from a long, long way away, because it has those properties. So when you put the stone at these specific hotspots, it remembers and records and stores the energy. So that the next person that comes along influences that energy field by putting their prayer and their intent into the site. And the more people do it, the more the site becomes sacred over time. Mm -hmm. So you fast forward, the Egyptians start building their temples on these hot spots. And then the Gothic cathedrals in Europe are built over these spots by the people who knew how to do this. So these were the Knights Templar and the Cistercians. The Catholic Church thought that they were just putting up buildings to honor God. Yes, but they didn't tell them which God they're honoring. They're honoring a universal concept, not a Catholic God, It's because that's a very limited idea. So these places, and especially throughout Europe, they're built on top of the ancient sacred sites. So if you go into France, you go to Spain, uh, Portugal, uh, I don't know if it happens anywhere else in Europe, uh, probably Italy. Uh, if you look at the uh, foundations of the buildings, there's a stone circle or a dolmen under them, or they actually incorporate the actual stones of the old monument within the actual walls of the modern building itself. And so they're taking advantage of what was there before for many thousands of years, the energy of place and the uh, healing property of the space and the um, prayer of the space. And you can go there to a place called the altar and you are altered. That's why it's called an altar. You know, it's altering you to a new, a new level of resistance. Mm. And that was all kept from the church because they had no idea what the hell they were doing. So it's almost like a bit of a joke that was going on in, around the world where a new religion comes in, takes over everything, but they have no idea what they're doing. And yet the buildings are, uh, that sit on the land have the prayers and the energy that has come from thousands of years before. And this is why we go to these places to have that effect. Uh, and today, again, we can actually monitor people's uh, effects and uh, body patterns and brainwave patterns to show the difference of what happens when you are in a sacred space. And it does show that your brainwaves are accentuated as much as 4,000% above normal waking state uh, when you travel to these places. Yeah, and it was actually the Russian scientists that found this out because they were way ahead of anybody in terms of that kind of research. Mm -hmm. So we, again, we, today we have the ability to map this energy, to demonstrate it and see how it affects people uh, to the point where we know which sites can be used for healing or for altered states of awareness. 
And the idea was to connect you with a much finer level of being, uh, what you want to call God, if you want to call it that, uh, or, or the source or the management, as I call it. Uh, depends what you want to call it. Uh, but the idea was to connect with something greater than yourself so you can be much more aware uh, of yourself within the three-dimensional world. And by bringing information from the other side, from the other world, you can apply that in your daily life and hopefully become a better person because that's what it's all about. It's about you know doing your work here while you're actually awake uh, and not dead to the world. You're not just you know you're not just born. You have a difficult life and then you die. Uh, that's that's what people do when they're not aware of the bigger picture. Uh, they're just attached to the material world, and that has its purpose as well. Uh, but the, anyone who wants to do their uh, spend their time here wisely, they try to connect with the place where they came from bring back information, apply it, and they become better people. They become much more aware of why they're here and the process of what they're going through. And that gives you a degree of control of your life and your manifestation process. And that's pretty dangerous if you think about it. So if, you're, if you can change the shape of the world around you to your will, uh, and there are limits to that, by the way, you can't just do what you want. Uh, imagine what that would do in the hands of people who want to control the world or want to control people or want to do very nefarious things. So that's why the information was, was very well protected. It wasn't because it was secret for the um, idea of being secret. It was because it was dangerous used in the wrong hands. It was a protection device. Uh, so that's the importance of sacred space in a nutshell. It was really to make you understand that you are a god rather than waiting for something out there to come by and fix your problems because that's never going to happen. Thank you. I just saw a light flashing. I don't know if it, there's cars outside or something. It was just interesting. There was like a light flashing on top of your head just now. <laughs> we have it on the recording, but thank you so much. And I, I also like how you... Yeah, how you kind of uh, close it into why it's important for us, you know, anyone can just go, go about these places, but why, why would we do that? And why people are drawn to it? And I, I feel personally that many, you know, most of my friends now are people who work with, you know, these sacred energies. And they also tell me that um, they feel water, the importance of water is very important, which basically yes. is quartz. I mean, quartz crystals are basically you know, crystallized water. So I feel it's kind of the same thing, but I feel also that uh, many feel called, and that's also the reason why I wanted to have this talk, because many feel called to now awaken these energies, to go and bring other peoples to these places. At least that's one of the, partially one of the things uh, I feel. I feel very, very called to now, as I've been teaching and learning from these places and learning how to manage the energy myself, I now feel called to bring people to certain places in the Sintra forest. However, what I was just shown was a well. I was shown, I'm being told that there's three places, but I'm being shown a well. And it doesn't seem like it's on any map. And I've even been to like the tourist office. And some of them are like, they're actually quite open actually to the idea that there is like, he was like handing me a note with an esoteric kind of website. You know, you might find something here a young guy working at the tourist office in Sintra. So I found that kind, kind of funny. I feel that, you know, in the gift shop at the airport, you know, I could talk about, I don't know, I could talk about the Templars. I remember when I went to the churches and things and I could just stand in a gift shop and the Portuguese respond to it. It's very interesting. It's like it's in their blood. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I was talking about, I was w watching these very special Portuguese um, jewellery and I just 
had a chat with a woman and I said, yeah, I don't know. I've been discovering this about the Templars. I find it really interesting, the Portuguese people. And she was saying like, yeah, we that's who we are. You know, we we share, we we care about people. You know, I was sharing a little bit about your podcast, about, you know, how, um, yeah, how the Templars took care of people. And I said, yeah, I really, I can feel that in the Portuguese people. And and she said she resonated with that anyways. I'm sidetracking, but what I wanted oh, very to say. interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, because I, well, I can Well, my feel... book was a bestseller in Portugal. It actually, yeah, I actually uh, I see... was ahead of Dan Brown, which is really incredible. What? It um, was... So... I, yeah, I mean, my book was ahead of Dan Brown uh, in the Portugal wow, I love Templar that. book. Yay. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it caught uh, a national... Actually, I feel a bit guilty because now I've I've gone back to some of the places that I wrote about and they're mobbed with tourists, which actually has the wrong effect that I wanted, but there's nothing you can do about that. Uh, it touched the nerve so. in the country. Yeah, and I, don't, yeah. I think also, like, there's, you know, they're very proud and I think Portugal has gone through so much. And actually, the first thing that I discovered coming to Portugal was not all of this sacred knowledge it was somebody talking about an old philosopher in the north in northern portugal uh, and that there was a young man channeling this um this philosopher who's now passed a long time ago who said something about the fifth imperium portugal being the fifth imperium have you ever heard about that i have yeah yeah and also familiar yeah i was like you know you just follow a thread that was back in 2016 yeah. I was there on holiday and then people just start talking randomly. And then, you know, I also feel that Portugal, since I started going in like regularly in 2016, I feel now many people have kind of flooded the country and want to live there and also want to practice healing and, you know, do, yeah, the much more openness yeah. and yoga retreats and whatnot. And I feel... I feel I've it's because that. of the country has awakened. I feel the knowledge is awakening. I feel that's the need I have also to create more information and make it available somehow in a sacred way because I want to honor and respect yeah. what was there in the first place, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you have any knowledge of these wells I'm talking about or if you could point me in the right direction in the Sintra Forest? Because I don't really know the Sintra Forest. Oh, they're everywhere. Um, it's very hard to find. A lot of the stuff is now private property, which is very annoying. Uh, and they're yeah. usually uh, owned by very, very rich people who don't want uh, outsiders to go poking their nose into their property. But I was reading some books from the 15th century and before. Uh, I can still read Portuguese. And uh, mm -hmm. I found certain areas around uh, Galeda, which is where the um, uh, that main little area rebuilt by this mason uh, at the turn of the century uh, as a, an initiatic garden. And it's all still there. It's all available to the public. But if you look at the actual area around it, it was called the Forest of Angels. Uh, and there are actual caves there made of pure crystal uh, because the whole area is very volcanic. So that's not unusual by itself, but it attracted a lot of people for thousands of years uh, who went there and gave up their daily life to go off and connect with the other world because the place is special, and not just energetically, but also visually. So uh, holy wells uh, are, are everywhere. Um, sometimes they're, they're, they've been there for so long 
that no one even knows they're even there anymore. Um, most people don't pay attention to them these days. Um, you've almost got to go walking around and see what pops up yeah. uh, because the Arabs who were there for a, a few hundred years, they also were aware of the healing uh, ability of not just the water, but also the stones themselves had healing properties. Uh, mm-hmm. And they were very uh, observant about this. And it's all around that little area around Sintra. Uh, in, uh, and especially around uh, the Forest of Angels. It seems to be around there more often than anywhere else. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's, if there's wells that go back into God knows thousands of years uh, because one of the oldest stone circles in Europe is also still there and it's now in on a private property. And I think they build a, uh, a mausoleum over it or something. So it's slowly being destroyed, unfortunately, uh, until you get the right people who own the property and then they bring it back and show the right respect and restore it to its original condition. So there are a couple of um, properties which I'm trying to make friends with the owners so that I can get access to it. And yeah. under the... Uh, under the, the the auspice that I'm not going to talk, uh, make this public without their permission, you know, because obviously yeah. you, you got to work what you have, and as long as I can gain their confidence with trust, and they, they should open up. But it takes it takes uh, effort. Uh, I also have a a friend who um, works on one of these properties, which is now a major hotel and spa center, and she works with the Labyrinth Society, and she's aware that there is either an old stone circle or some kind of an entrance to a crystal cave uh, on the property. And she's been trying to figure out where it is because part of the entrance may have been uh, covered by development. So we'll see. Actually, I need need to talk to her when I go there in a few weeks, Mm. see if she's done some undercover work. Um, So, but Sintra is important. I mean, that's where the original gods from the the Atlantic arrived after uh, a global flood sank their island in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, which of course we know what it is. Um, so they arrived there uh, just uh, must have been what twelve, ten thousand years ago, and they started this whole tradition. And they were supposedly incredibly tall. They were very light skinned compared to the local population, uh, and they were blue eyed and uh, blonde, and sometimes they had red hair or blue eyes. Very unusual for that part of the world. So uh, yeah, and I was actually born at that specific location, which is even stranger. Uh, I know it's very very freaky. Uh, it's uh, right at the base of the of the mountain of Sintra, uh, a place called Keluj, which means the uh, receptacle of the light. Keluj, you know, uh, which is yeah, which is linked to Luxor in Egypt as well, uh, with which I have a connection. So it's kind of funny that I'm born in the place that has an Egyptian sort of uh, name to it. Uh, so all of these things that I'm also I'm not just writing about this. I'm also through the writing discovering myself and why I'm born in this strange place in the uh, on the planet that no one's ever heard of and then i'm traveling around the world doing what i do so for me it's also a matter of personal discovery so i don't have all the answers to that yet Uh, we'll see where it goes yeah so there's a very long tradition around centra of uh, gods uh, uh, heightened states of consciousness spirituality so i'm not surprised that it's survived to this very day Yeah, I feel I I often go to also some of the convents and around the these megalithic stones and I just lay on the stones and I feel that they yeah. just recharge me. Uh and then I don't know, they have a very feminine, almost like Magdalene energy. I feel that they're very soft and but you know, some people I've seen many people come there and do ceremonies and rituals, etc. Because I also some people said that these stones are exactly similar to the ones in Stonehenge. Yet, you know, how did they just appear on this little mountain of Peninha? This uh, where this um, 
uh, oh there yes yeah yeah you know it i know it yeah, yeah. there's a dolmen there that's about uh, i think i've I've a, the alignment is about 8,000 BC. It's a very, very old place. It now looks like a normal set of rocks. Uh, it's a very dangerous part of the world because of the uh, fault line that runs under it. I mean, I remember when Fine. I was living uh, there. You know, there's, a, there's a big fault line that runs through Sintra. It's a, one of the most dangerous fault lines in the world. They have terrible earthquakes. Uh, oh. it, it's literally sinking into the ocean. Uh, and uh, when I was seven, I actually survived an 8.6 earthquake there. Not fun. Really? Um, no. So the whole place has been shaken and because of the, oh. we the way the weather works, it's eroded all the, uh, um, the soil on the top of the mountain. So I know where the entrance is to the dolmen. Uh, I actually take people there. Uh, not easy to find. Uh, and then there, it, there's a tunnel that goes about five miles uh, about six kilometers uh, through the, the summit of Sintra, and it appears on an, on the other part of the uh, the mountain, which is not far from where Penna Palace is. The exit is actually there, and it's fully aligned with the equinox, sunrise, and sunset. Hey? Can you walk through it? No, you can't. It's all collapsed. Because it's yeah, very that's what I'm interesting. The I've been there several times. Difficult. I've been there several times with uh, you know a friend of mine, and we tend to say. This looks like a stone circle. Hmm, this is very peculiar, you know, but I'm not sure. Maybe yeah. I can, e well, maybe you can email me the location because I would love to, unless I just join your tour. But um, I'd love yeah, to know. It's, it's so damaged now that uh, it's hard to tell the difference now between what's real and what's uh, man-made. But there are, there's one place that the entrance to the tunnel is very definitely man-made. Uh, nature doesn't behave like that. And you can see where things have collapsed. The whole yeah. tunnel's collapsed. And there are stories there that have been around forever of uh, tunnels that go as much as 15 miles from one summit to the next summit. The, the whole mountain is hollow. So they're taking advantage of natural uh, volcanic uh, tunnels in order to create additional man-made tunnels. And there's one that links the top of the um, castle of the Moors to another tunnel that comes out on the river of the Moors. And they actually saw people escaping the uh, uh, Portuguese army in the 12th century, uh, all the Moors escaped underground and they appeared on the tunnel uh, by the river of the Moors. Uh, there's another tunnel that goes from one of the summits of Sintra, comes under the vent uh, of the Capuchin, uh, three miles away. Uh, so there's a whole network and it's well known uh, and it's quite dangerous as well. People go in there exploring, they don't come back. Really? And and do you think this is because these, say, you know, these rituals, etc. were were secret or do you just think it's it's there for no particular reason, just to connect all of the areas. Or would you think it's connected? Oh, I figured right that they somewhere? found. They, 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 I was saying before, they could feel it. Uh, and uh, they were able to tap into that and then build temples on these places to mark the location because people would forget. You see, they stop thinking and stop feeling. Um, so it's the same thing in France and in many parts of Ireland and Scotland, uh, where you have big concentrations of ancient sacred sites, you also have massive fault lines and earthquake zones, which doesn't seem logical to build places made of stone in a place where they're going to fall down. But that's the whole point. It's part of the technology is this friction in the earth which creates this tension, it's electric tension, which mm -hmm. gen generates an energy which transmits itself to the stones. So uh, Egypt, Egypt is the same way. All the temples on the, on the Nile Valley uh, are 
built on one of the most fractured rift zones on the entire planet. Uh, sometimes when there's an earthquake there, the Nile is actually flowing backwards. So taking a huge risk by building these places where they are, but it's part of the natural energy of the land that's in constant state of vibration, which creates that electromagnetic quality, which transfers to the stones and the stones transfers the energy to the people that visit them. So they're making use of the natural law in order to create a, a sacred space. Interesting. Yeah. Well, there's so much, there's so much to uncover, but what would you say in terms of, yeah, the knowledge that you're working on and on Portugal and the importance of Portugal and why people or how people might interact with these places. And, you know, I'm thinking about the future. I'm thinking also about where we're at right now in the world, you know, uh, that there is a great awakening happening. There is, there are many people searching. That's one of the first things I find when I come go to Portugal and I travel around. People are in search of something, but they're not really quite sure what it is. And I just feel it's good to give people um, just very easy steps to embark on, you know, your soul journey. And what would you say? I mean, you have so much information, but also experience on, you know, if somebody is searching, maybe it's their mission, their sole purpose, you know, maybe it's that beginning of the thread. What would your advice be of how to, you know, is it seeking out <laughs> the places? Is it practices from within? What? Yeah, I'd love to hear. Uh, drink heavily. Uh, that's what I do. Um, this is right, so crazy, okay. nothing makes sense. Uh, actually, it does help. We do a lot of uh, heavy drinking in pubs and we come up with the greatest <laughs> ideas which turn out to be true. Um, but no, I think you have to find your own way. You have to find your own path. Uh, mm -hmm. That's how it's been for me. And that's been for the people that I've read, that I, um, that I appreciate. Uh, and I acknowledge as being people who really are talking uh, the, uh, the, 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 the truth. Uh, and it really comes from, uh, you have to be curious. You have to be willing of letting go of everything that you've, you've learned uh, and literally walking like a child, not really knowing uh, what you're doing and uh, being in a state of receptivity where you connect with something greater than yourself. And usually when you're not looking for something, and when you're not asking for something, it finds you. Uh, this is how I've had my experiences in the Great Pyramid, for example, when, you know, in the middle of total darkness, I saw all the people, all the priests coming out of the stones surrounding me and three other people, and they saw it too. We had not expected that. We didn't ask for that. It was the connection between us and the sacred space that created that uh, wonderful event and it changed my life uh, and since then I've done the same technique I go to these places that I feel subtly drawn to like I'll be sitting here uh, and I'll be you know twitching itching to go I, I like traveling uh, and I like getting in my car and disappearing and some days I just get it in my head I have to go to this specific place I thought okay because there's something in me that's in my subconscious that's saying this is missing in you right now, or you're searching for something which you are not even aware of. Mm. And if we go to the site, the answer will be there. And usually it is. And I usually go to the place and I'll say, so what is this about? And how does it make me a better teacher? Because that's my job. Uh, and that's all I ask. And I just walk around, I'll take pictures, I have a sandwich. And suddenly I'm writing, I'm seeing something, or I hear something. And it becomes part of my journey of uh, research, which then becomes a book or a documentary. That's usually how it begins for me. And from that experience, I grow as a person too. Uh, so I learn to fall on my own, on my face once in a while, make an idiot of myself, you know, that 
myself off, get up again, and try to do it better the second time, uh, and not to not be too hard on myself. That's usually what, how it works. Uh, you're on a journey of discovery. You're here to have an experience, mm -hmm. uh, and there's no one else that can tell you how to do it. Uh, the best you can do is, you know, read the right books, read the right documentaries, go traveling to the sacred sites, and slowly you start acquiring all of this information. And then after a few years, you realize half this information was complete nonsense. It was coming from someone's head. It wasn't yeah. coming from reality. And yeah. that's happened to me too. I mean, I used to buy every book that wasn't nailed to the to a wall. And then I realized after years of doing this that most of the people writing these books have no idea what the hell they're talking about. It's all yeah. coming from, from here, yeah, from your yeah. ego. Yeah. And a lot of them are not particularly nice people either. They're all so spiritual and they're complete frauds. They're, there's a lot of fakery yeah. going on in the new age environment. But yeah. be that as it may, yeah. uh, I'm sure they're probably trying to do the best they can. Um, after a while, you get a sense that, okay, I've read all of this, and I kind of knew it anyway. I kind of felt like I knew all of this. Yeah. So you remove all these things. You keep the things that make sense. So they become your toolbox, okay? Uh, and then you apply your experience as the other part of your uh, uh, tools, and suddenly you have all of these tools at your disposal. So you're borrowing here and there from other people how they've tackled the same problem. And if yeah. it makes sense for you, apply it. But then you have to finesse it into your own experience because otherwise you're following someone else's experience. So my experience is no good to you because I'm following my own trajectory. That's not your trajectory. You've yeah. got to find your own path. So if yeah. I say something that makes sense to you, yeah. apply that until it yeah. doesn't work, throw it away, keep what works and apply what you have learned that makes sense and works. And now you've got, you're, you're your own teacher now. You know, yeah. and then you can show the way to somebody else. Yeah. Um, I, I think the Hopi actually said it quite well. Uh, they have a very funny phrase that said, you know, uh, we're the ones who we've been waiting for. You know, we keep waiting for a teacher, a guru or a, uh, an expert to come along. Yeah, they're useful only up to a point, because after that, you have to actually be your own expert. But that comes from experience. So the thing, the big advice I always tell people is go to a sacred place. It could be a standing stone. It could be a stone circle. Mm. It could be a, a church on top of an old sacred site. Mm. Um, it might even be a coffee shop in downtown uh, Stockholm, uh, which is sitting on an old sacred site, which then became right. a Viking grave, that then became a coffee shop. Mm. Uh, because if, if it feels right where you're sitting, you know there's something important that. about that location. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, I can walk it downtown is. Portland, Maine, right now and go and sit somewhere. And I know there's something special there. Uh, and uh, because I feel right, I feel connected. And it's those moments Trust. when you feel connected yeah. that you know there's something important about the place. And sometimes in the modern era, people that uh, have bought that building or that coffee shop or that theater, they are connected to the same energy too. And they felt that that's why they bought that location and it attracts people who are searching for the same thing. So the trick is to follow yourself in the end uh, and yeah. you know, learn to fall down once in a while and don't worry about it. I mean, if we were perfect, we, we wouldn't have incarnated. Think about it. You mm. know, if you think you're that good, you're not because you're here. Um, only people who have completely mastered the art of everything are no longer alive. They're now feeding us the information in the places where we call sacred sites in order to help our journey just as it once helped them so that's the relationship we have a lot of help in the invisible universe that i call the management uh, so it's always worthwhile listening to the management once in a while and see what comes in 
uh, and then it shapes your experience because no one else can tell you how to do it. Only you can find out in the end. I love that. Thank you.